Thank you for listening to the Following Films Podcast. Today I'm joined by director Dan Mervish to talk about his latest film, 18 and a Half. 18 and a Half humorously crafts its own narrative into the notorious gap in Nixon's Watergate scandal. Taking place in 1974, 18 and a Half is about a fictional White House transcriber who finds the only copy of the infamous 18 and a Half minute gap in Nixon's Watergate tapes, but her attempts to leak it to the press runs afoul of hippies, swingers, and nefarious forces. I had a great time chatting with Dan, despite the fact that I was recording my end of this conversation in the Atlanta airport um, due to a layover. I got stuck there. I was supposed to uh, be traveling that day, and I expected to be able to get to the hotel with a couple hours um, left over to set up for this interview, but I ended up being stuck in Atlanta for about six and a half, seven hours, something like that. Um, the interview was really fun. Dan was very patient with me, understood um, all the background noise. So if you hear anything, any weird beeping or anything like that in the background throughout the episode, that's what's going on. I tried to mute it as much as possible, but I'm sure there's a couple times where you're going to hear some stuff in the background. Um, but please make sure you check out the film 18 and a half on May 27th. I hope you enjoy the show. there you go all right not not at all not at all i apologize for if there's weird background noise i'm actually i was expecting to be in north carolina today but my flight was delayed i'm traveling this morning so i'm actually in atlanta right now and that's why there's a nuclear winter behind me right now (laughs) actually are you at the airport or i'm I'm in the airport right now so if you hear loud beeping and that kind of stuff i apologize it's quite right not not the way i was expecting to do this recording today so thank you it's all right um, so I guess the, the first thing that I, and I apologize that it's probably that everybody's asking you at this point is how this story take, uh, kind of taking on this, um, unknown 18 and a half minutes where you could really project anything into it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an idea that two, three years ago, whenever you first started working on this, um, absolutely was, this was relevant to, to what's going on today. Yeah. And then about a month and a half ago, um, <laughs> when we found out that there was eight hours of our former president's call log missing, it became incredibly relevant. Is that something that you were kind of thinking about when making this movie kind of the prior presidency? Or is that something that um, you're tired of people bringing up to you? At this point? No, no, no. I'm not tired at all. No, I mean, this whole project got started because if you remember uh, November 2016, there was a presidential election that happened to coincide with the last day of shooting on my last film, Bernard and Huey. And the next day I was taking dailies out to see our uh, screenwriter, Jules Pfeiffer, a famous Oscar Pulitzer winner. And uh, he lives out in uh, Shelter Island at the tip of Long Island. And, you know, because and he won his Pulitzer essentially for his Nixon Watergate cartoons in the Village Voice in the early 70s. So inevitably, the conversation went to talking about Nixon and Watergate. And, you know, we s- survived that. What could possibly go wrong? You know, he was trying to kind of reassure us. And um, uh, and then that night, I wound up uh, staying with my um, friend, uh, Terry Keefe, who owns this great motel, the Silver Sands Motel out in Greenport, Long Island. And and Terry was with me uh, uh, talking to Pfeiffer that day. And, you know, this motel was built in the 50s and 60s. And Terry kind of inherited it from his grandparents. And he's like, well, we do a ton of fashion shoots out here, but no one's ever done a feature film. And, you know, we're closed in the winter. Everyone, cast and crew can stay here. And we're like, hmm, Watergate, great location. There's got to be something we can do here. And, um, you know, and, and as a 
student of history and political science in college as a Senate speechwriter for a couple of years before film school. You know, I'd been fascinated by by Watergate for years and the whole kind of Washington culture of of leaking and how do you leak and who do you leak to? Um, and so then in doing the research, realized that there were, you know, four or so uh, different offices in the Nixon White House that all had these voice-activated tape machines. And there really are tapes of Nixon listening to and uh, pushing the buttons on his tapes. And once I realized that that was a real thing and a real plausible thing, then it gave us a, a way into to the story that I then you know collaborated with my writing partner, uh, Daniel Moya, on. Um, and, you know, but the other thing is that, and going back kind of more to your question, is, you know, anytime you want to comment on whatever's going on now contemporaneously, if you're making an independent film, you, you don't know how long it's going to take before you're done with it, before people see it. Um, you know, it can be a couple of years, it could be four years. By the time other people see it, it could be 20 years. You don't know. Um, and also you've got people seeing it all around the world too. So you want to make it relevant to, you know, Brazilians and, and Spaniards and whoever else. Um, so, but I think that's a nice thing about doing a historical film with analogies to whatever the contemporaneous situation is, because it's always going to be, the themes of it are always going to be resonant and relevant. So we didn't know what would happen with the Trump administration. We didn't know what will happen with the Biden administration for that matter, you know? So, but these themes of presidential hubris and, and, and farcical fumbling of, you know, uh, cover-ups is, you know, that's, that's, resonates everywhere. I mean, when we showed the film in, in Brazil at the Sao Paulo International Festival, they were like, oh, yeah, this is really all about Bolsonaro. Right. You know, and in Spain, they're like, oh, this is about Franco. And, and in, in Manchester, England, they're like, oh, yeah, this is like Boris Johnson's new scandal. You know, it starts as this bumbling, idiotic thing, but the cover up is worse. And um, so that's what's been interesting about it is everybody kind of reads something different into it. And and that's that's good. That's a good thing. Well, it's really sad and disappointing that um tales like this will remain evergreen that is something yeah. that this is one of those stories that yeah you can do this 20 years from now and it would just be just as relevant and i think you can almost yeah. just dive into all these different corners of the nixon administration to make things about political corruption and it's almost like there's i'm not a comic book guy or a comic book movie guy but you know the nixon extended universe at this point <laughs> like all these movies uh, just go into these different little corners of it. Yeah. I, I just think there's endless stories and especially even this one that you mm -hmm. could just really project anything into it. And you combine Nixon with Howard Hughes and that Venn diagram in my mind, that's just a absolute, my imagination just gets running with that. Yeah, exactly. And, and that was part of what we wanted to do was to make a Watergate film that wasn't like every other Watergate film. You know, it, it, it doesn't hew to the facts. I mean, it has these fictional characters kind of in the middle of it, but also my approach to historical fiction kind of conceptually is a little different than say, you know, what um, Tarantino does, which I love, but it, he, by the end of his historical films, history is completely different. You know, it's completely diverged. Hitler gets killed or doesn't get killed or Manson does this or that. Whereas I wanted to do, uh, I don't know if it's more traditional in historical fiction, but the, the kind of thing where there is this sort of fictional loop in the middle of your historical timeline, but you're, you're reset to the timeline that we, we know and love. Um, 
and that's kind of what I wanted to do, but it, it means that everything really has to be plausible um, to, to work that way. And, and like you said, like there's so many different ways to look at, at the Nixon administration. The more you research it, the more rabbit holes you go down and ITT and Wonder Bread and Howard Hughes and, you know, all these things that, you know, they're not in all the president's men, uh, but they're and they're not in, you know, the, you know, Oliver Stone's Nixon, but they were really, you know, they were relevant and real at the time uh, in different ways. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's just it's one of those things where I think that um, when you're doing a film like this, the actual events that happened, if you get too bogged by down by the actual people and the words and the um, you can lose the emotional honesty with a story mm-hmm. like this, which I think is so important to actually tell something that's going to be relevant. That's not just a you know, it's not a documentary. You're trying to tell something right. that is about really these two people as much yeah. as it, you know, it's the exactly. administration. It's about two people trying to do the right thing in the face of adversity. I yeah. And, and it's, you know, look, it's a, it's a rom-com. It's a, it's a romance story <laughs> you know, with the younger couple and the older couple too. You know, how do you tell a world war two romance, you know, set in 1974 and we, you know, we have characters that kind of do that. Um, yeah, exactly. At, at every stage of the game, from the writing to the the performance to to editing to sound, it, whenever we were presented with a creative decision, do we go with the characters or do we go with Watergate? We always went with the characters. We went with Willa Fitzgerald's character, Connie. This is her journey, and and what is she going through? And and we always kind of defaulted there. And I think that's great because then it doesn't matter how much you know about Watergate before going in or not going in. You, you know, you can relate to the characters. Absolutely. And that's really um, the performances here um, because it's, this is a stacked cast. I mean, <laughs> you, you, I, I think you kind of pulled off a minor miracle with some of the Thank people you. that you pulled together for this film. Um, right? Cause so many things could have gone wrong with this. You're doing a period piece on what I assume is a very limited budget. You're stylistically mm-hmm. telling it where it looks like film stock from the 1970s. You're having to do period costumes and you're also doing something that could be, um, I don't know, it, politically, it, it could be something where there's backlash to some degree from it. So it's, mm-hmm. you could have gone wrong in so many ways. And I feel like this <laughs> movie, just like everything worked out for you. So was this something that yeah. taking this on, there was the you know nerve wracking element to it. I mean, uh, just to, Get back to the original point, though, is just I think it works because of the casting, though. With all those other elements, the casting is what really pulls everything together here. Yeah, no, and they were amazing. And, and you know, and to do all those things that you said and to have them at least turn out halfway halfway right. I mean, that's true in, in a sense with every movie. You know, it's it's always, you know, you're walking a tightrope blindfolded standing over a pit of vipers and alligators you know that's that's making a movie um and then there's a pandemic going on in the middle of it i mean we started shooting march 3rd 2020 what could possibly go wrong and uh you know and and we got 11 days in and we found out we were the last feature shooting in north america and we're like that that's what does everyone else know that we don't know you know and uh, so we shut down and we had, you know, about 80% of the movie done, but we still had four days left to shoot. And we didn't know when we would come back or what would happen. So, and about a third of our crew wound up, uh, so about seven or eight people wound up staying at the Silver Sands for two months because they were afraid to go back to New York. They, these were like the single Brooklyn types. 
And, um, and actually our cinematographer, El Schneider, she stayed for six months. She never left. Um, cause we went back exactly six months later, we took a, a healthy hiatus or pandemic pause. And when it was safe, you know, when screen actors guild and directors guild had the new protocols in place, we were able to go back and we were one of the first films shooting again and everyone came back everyone. And this really speaks to the fortitude of the cast and the, and the crew that they, they all wanted to come back and, and, and finish making the movie. Cause we knew we had something decent, you know, I think if we hadn't and they'd be like, yeah, well, good luck. But, um, but it really, it, you know, everyone really stuck with it. And, uh, and, and, you know, we use that six months to our advantage. That's when we shot the, um, or recorded the, the 18 half in a gap with, you know, the, the voiceover uh, performance with, uh, with Bruce Campbell and John Cryer and Ted Ramey. We actually did that over Zoom just like this. And um, because the actors were sitting around with nothing to do, you know, in those, in those days of the early quarantine. And we did a lot of the music then with my composing, my composer, Luis Guerra and, I found musicians uh, all over the world in Mexico city and Brazil to, to work on it together. So um, yeah, it was uh, yeah. So we made it to the other end of that, of that uh, um, line. The, uh, <laughs> yeah. Today's episode of the following films podcast is brought to you by Bookman's. So this week when I went into Bookman's, I walked over to the Blu-ray section to the criterion section, which is, usually where I start when I go in there and I start circling my way around the store, but I didn't get very far uh, this last trip because one of the first things I saw was the Criterion Blu-ray for Foreign Correspondent. If you're not familiar with the film, it's a Hitchcock film from 1940. Of course, it's black and white and it's a spy thriller about a a reporter who goes to Britain uh, to uncover spies uh, right before World War II. Uh, breaks out and this is a really fun film that i think deserves to be recognized amongst hitchcock's better uh, spy thrillers so I, you put it up there with north by northwest and other films like that i feel like it's been overshadowed by rebecca because that year when this came out rebecca and foreign correspondent both came out that same year and both were nominated for best picture um, in the oscars and rebecca ended up winning the only other director that I can think of that's done that, had two films nominated for Best Picture in the same year, was Francis Ford Coppola. I think that The Conversation and Godfather 2 were up in the same year. If I'm wrong about that, I apologize. I guess I could go ahead and fact check myself right now, but I'm already recording, so screw it. I'm just going to run with it. And I don't think any other director has done that. If I'm mistaken on that, please let me know. I'd like to know who the uh, third one is to do that. And... This is one of the things I love about going into Bookman's because this is a film that I've been wanting to pick up this particular Blu-ray for quite a while now, and there it was. I was so happy to see it and dove right into it when I got home that night, uh, something my wife had never seen. She really enjoyed the movie. This is not the type of film that she really goes for normally, so if you haven't seen Foreign Correspondent, I highly recommend it. It's a lot of fun. Definitely check it out. That's the great thing about going to Buckman's because you're always going to find something there um, that you wouldn't wouldn't expect, something you wouldn't anticipate. Just go in there and kind of like I do, and I start circling around the store where I'll start in the Blu-rays and I'll go over to the vinyl and start working through the books and the rare books, and I'll go over and find a puzzle for my wife or come around and look for uh, some housewares, things like that. Might even find some electronics or speakers, and I mean really. There's always something cool there. And remember, Bookman's has your cool covered. I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. Thanks. 
Yeah, you kind of, it's, there must have been some pretty dark days, I would imagine, in that in between time from when you only had four days left to shoot. That's so yeah. close to the end of the finish line. Um, and then to think you might not be able to go back to this, you know, will you get everybody back? And, you know, it's just being that close. Were you thinking of ways to make it work if you weren't able to get that? Or was it just something this could be dead? I, you know, we, the way we had shot that first 11 days, we had a lot of whole scenes and sequences ready to go, but it was pretty much just the scenes with Connie, Paul, Lena, and Samuel. So none of the hippies, none of the Richard Kind stuff. Um, and you know, it was maybe 60 minutes, you know, we, and we, we cut a kind of rough cut with that, with these holes in it. And we, you know, cause we still need to raise money. We need to raise more money because we need to like, you know, pay people all over again and, and rent equipment again and go back out there and, and pay for PCR testing when that was hard to find. And, um, so we had it available to show a few people, um, you know, kind of what we have, but it was never. And we thought about it. We're like, is this enough for a whole movie? And we're like, no, it's not. It's got like these weird gaps in the middle of it. It's just, it's not, you know, it would never have made sense. You know, the nice thing is, is that given that six month gap, it gave us time to kind of see the footage we have and, and tweak the script for those last four days and, and realize that, you know, oh yeah, let's, let's, and we didn't have to reshoot anything, which is good. We could have, but we didn't. Um, but we were able to tweak things a little bit, add a little scene here, take a scene out. Like, you know, the day before we went back, they were like, you know what, let's have us Sully Jones, who Sullivan Jones, who plays Barry, the hippie. We're like, you, be, you got a guitar, right? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. We're writing a song for you tomorrow. We're like, uh, okay. You know, things like that, that probably we wouldn't have done if we had just shot it continuously. So on a creative standpoint, it, it actually worked to our advantage. That's, that's so incredible that you were able to pull that off and get that together <laughs> and having it's a luxury to some degree to before you cross the finish line that you do get to revisit things and give yourself that gut check if you have everything you need which is something that is kind of a gift in a way which you know yeah. i guess we kind of need to find all the positives of the last two and a half years exactly. at this point so that would right. be one yeah. um but then when you think about this is that something that you would take away from this as when you approach the next film, are there lessons that you had from having this unusual um, thing that could have really, I mean, in a way you could have said missing 20 minutes of your movie. Goddamn, how appropriate would that have been? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Would have been exactly 18 and a half minutes missing. Um, <laughs> that would have been funny, but uh, yeah, but it wasn't a continuous 18 and a half, but it's close. Yeah. It would have been close. Uh, no, I, I mean, I think it is, it look, it's something Hollywood films do all the time. They shoot and then they take a, you know, they cut and then they come back and they reshoot and it's, it's really expensive to do in a normal situation, much less an indie film. Um, you know, I think on all my films, I've always shot like a couple insert shots and things like that later. So that is something I'm kind of used to doing uh, on, on even a small scale. Um, and which indie films can do, you know, you can't get the whole, can't normally get the whole cast and crew together again, but you can, you know, get the, um, you know, the, the insert shots of the tape player and things like that, which we did. We shot in my garage during kind of this, the second uh, lockdown phase in the winter of, you know, 21 or whenever it was. And it was just me and my kids shooting in my garage right here in this room. Um, so uh, yeah, so we were able to do things like that. That's a, that's pretty incredible to be able to have that opportunity and to have it turn out the way that it did, where you don't feel those seams that this, 
a lot of the movies that I've been looking at over the last year, they a great number of them, they feel like pandemic movies. Yeah. But I think yeah. there's almost, and there's going to be something that, you know, I think if there were still video stores, you would have like the section, the, you know, if there was that <laughs> kind of art house video store, yep. you'd say, okay, pandemic features. And it would just be not necessarily the ones that um, were about it, but the ones that were made during that time and what they were doing yeah. about it. And yeah. it this doesn't feel like it because of all those elements with the, the, it feels like you have a pretty sprawling cast, but in fact, it's actually, that's a little bit of a film magic there where it's, almost like little vignettes where people are just coming in from the side for a moment and it's, you know, mm -hmm. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern showing up for like <laughs> two seconds and then, you know, exiting off the other side of the stage. And it's, I yeah. really love that about it because it is something that doesn't feel of this time. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Um, yeah. And part, and part of it, you know, the, the not of this time, I mean, we, you know, it was a real conscientious decision to, to, with every department, you know, I said, look, let's make this film as if we were shooting in 1974 in terms of any kind of creative decisions and tools. So, you know, there's no drone shots, there's no steady cam because that was 1976. Um, you know, the, the edits are all straight cuts. The, the music is all instruments that, that could have been done, Bossa Nova and Tropicalia instruments from the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and uh, yeah, and then of course, you know, we had this amazing location and, and a great, production designer who supplemented it and, and an amazing costume designer who, who uh, Sarah Kogan, who collects old patterns, you know, vintage uh, paper patterns, and but then makes new clothes for the actors, which is kind of crazy. Even big Hollywood films don't do that. So um, yeah, but every, but this was the kind of film where everyone in every department from the PAs to the actors, just, we all felt really good about it. You know, we knew we were making something special. Um, and honestly, the fact that we were going through this shared, you know, communal experience or global experience, but sharing it, you know, we were in this tiny bubble out in, in uh, the tip of Long Island where we didn't know if we were going to be the last people we were going to see on earth. You know, nobody knew what was going on or, you know, it felt like, um, you know, like Gilligan's Island on, on the set of the Brady Bunch. I mean, it was really surreal um, to say, you know, um, uh, and that's an understatement for sure. But um uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we had product placement with Omaha Steaks and then our actor, then our crew that stayed there for two months, they survived on Omaha Steaks. Even the vegetarians somehow managed. <laughs> so I think they ate the boxes. I don't, I'm not really sure, but, um, but yeah, so it was, it was a very strange experience, but I think in, in a way, it, you know, we grew together, you know, it was a really, you know, there was great chemistry among, you know, getting back to the cast, you know, we didn't have time for rehearsals, but we all had the shared experience. We were all staying at the same place, drinking product placement wine, eating product placement steak. And, um, you know, and uh, Willa brought her dog out there and we were playing with Goose the dog. And, um, and so it, it just, uh, it, it was an, it was a great environment. And because of that, I think all the actors are still really, you know, helping push the film. Well, I think one of the reasons that I'm drawn to independent film is, um, a lot of times you don't feel cynicism in the work that you do feel the love, even when things fall short. And when, you know, the production design isn't there, the audio mix might be a little bit off some of the performances, but you feel like everybody was invested. And to me, that means so much more. But then yeah. when you have something where all those pieces work, where your film does, where this feels so much more like you, you're punching above your weight class, and, <laughs> but it, you also have that lack of cynicism in this film. So I think you've made something really special here. And 
as a huge fan of Bernard and Huey, I was oh, really, I was, I love to see this, uh, I think growth in um, from film to film. This has been incredible to see. So. Well, thanks. I mean that you know that film was was great because we I looked at a lot of early seventies you know films for the look and feel of Bernard and Huey, and then um, you know and then about ten percent of it was actually shot as period. We actually shot some of that film on sixteen millimeter, you know, set in nineteen eighty nine, and and what what that did for me is it kind of demystified shooting a period film on an indie budget. Because that's for years, ever that's been the mantra. Oh, don't shoot period film on an indie budget; it's going to look like crap, you know, and you can't afford it. And and that experience, you know, just shooting that part of Bernard and Hugh, part of it we shot in this garage. We shot our subway scene uh, in the garage right here, uh, which was a whole crazy story. But anyway, but it was like like that, like figuring out how to shoot a nineteen eighty nine sub New York subway in a you know, 2017 Culver City Garage. It's like, oh yeah, there's ways to do period films. You know, if you, you're you kind of smart about it and creative and we're working with good people all around. So so I think by demystifying that, that really allowed me to, to think more about like, oh, how about a Watergate movie? Why not? You know, doesn't matter what my budget is. If the 90% of the movies at this great location and the other 10% that, you know, another great location, the diner. And, you know, it was, uh, why not do it that way? Well, there's that, um, that old Roger Corman quote where he says that he filmed the fall of the Roman empire with four extras and two bushes. And <laughs> I, I think that, you know, when we're focused on the performances and you're not focused on the extravagance of film and that those mm-hmm. kind of ancillary things that really, to me, they don't create an emotional connection when you're focused on those things that matter doesn't really it's secondary but i think when you're doing all those things right and you were clearly um putting that much thought into the costume design the sound design where you're using period proper instruments and the tape equipment and the cars and all these things and it you can i don't think the audiences necessarily would see it and call it out um when it's there and it's proper but when it's wrong we know and yeah, that's the exactly. it's it's a thankless thing taking that much effort to get everything right like um, what, like with the witch or something like that, when you get all that right, we don't know how much work it took, but we can feel it if that makes right. sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that was, and it, it just takes a ton of attention to detail in in every department and and catching things that are, you know, what's that iPhone doing there? Or, or we had a thing, you know, when we were shooting in those last four days, there were a couple of takes where someone would be wearing a mask, and we'd be like. 30 seconds into a take before we'd re- realize, Hey, wait a minute. That's not right. <laughs> Why are you wearing a mask? And the thing, cause you get so, you know, we were so accustomed to it at that point. Um, and we were like, cut, 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 cut. You know? So uh, we're like, yeah, that, that really says pandemic movie right there when you're accidentally wearing a mask, you know, but, um, <laughs> uh, but we were, you know, a lot of it was just luck, luck too. We had shot all of our kissing scenes, dancing scenes, fighting scenes, anything intimate where actors really needed to be close to each other um, before the shutdown. And so when it, so we really didn't have to rewrite anything significantly for pandemic rules. Um, We're, and, and that, Honestly, it was just luck, you know, because um, that would have really screwed things up. And we, and but, but also because it's an indie film, 
a lot of things that you do normally in indie films. You don't have big crowd scenes, you know, the Roman Empire, you know, with thousands of people. Um, so there's no crowds. We didn't. So then we didn't have to worry about like digital replacements or blow up dolls or you know things like that that other films were struggling with, you know, uh, when they came back. And um, uh, you know, and the fact that we were all staying in a mo- in a motel, everyone had individual rooms, everyone had their own bathrooms. Like, well, that's that's kind of how you do an indie film anyway. So one way or the other, you're usually in some kind of a bubble. So, um, so yeah, in a weird way, indie film kind of lent itself to adaptation for the, um, for the pandemic in a, in a way that a lot of Hollywood films are like the bigger budget indie films couldn't get made for, for a long time. Well, there, there's an element of the few sets that I've been to where they, they kind of feel like summer camp where it's just a couple people out on a, yeah. they had access to a location and they were able to use it and they make yep. the most of it. And they're letting their, you know, production value go up significantly by having access to, you know, this particular house that's in a picturesque location. And that's kind of what you go with. And it has that element of everybody just putting on a show. And I think that, yeah, it's, it definitely shows here that oh, thing that I love about the, this type of film, these indie films, it's just that heart there. And I think, You've done something really special, Dan, where you've managed to make a comedic, broad thriller, and <laughs> I, and that's something that's hard to do. And you you put Richard Kind in a patch, which I just I, I can't get enough of that. That's just like a, 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 that's just a huge joy for me to see. So, yeah, I mean, no, and, thank you and, for that. No, sure, and yeah, great pleasure working with, with Rich again, and and um, yeah, no, I mean that's part of our whole Alice in Wonderland kind of analogy is the one-eyed jack and the looking glass and you know connie eats the wonder bread in that opening scene and it's it's downhill from there you know um uh but yeah it was just little details like that that we could really you know have fun with on this one and um you know and and because of it we now have you know 63 minute soundtrack that just came out this week um and uh you know where where can we find the soundtrack because the music here is great Thank you. It's uh, you can get it on Spotify or iTunes or wherever fine soundtracks are sold um, digitally. But then we also we were able to. It's hard to get vinyl made these days, but we could get um, these little flexi discs made with two of the songs with Brazilian. So you have a little. And, you have a seven inch. I mean, come on, how do. punk rock is that? That's yeah, perfect. exactly. And it's actually it was made at this um, uh, uh, plant in um, in the Czech Republic that during the Cold War would smuggle in rock and roll. And then print it um, these flexi discs onto medical X-rays. Anyway, but they're still around. They're still making these things. So we got a couple of those available. Um, but yeah, so the soundtrack is great. Uh, again, Luis Guerra uh, and I. I wrote the the lyrics to to the songs that have lyrics, and then we found this great singer, Caro Pieroto. It's a Brazilian singer in LA. She sang most of the songs, and yeah, it was just a lot of fun to work on that. And but but that's also something that if we didn't have that time, you know. Uh, with the pandemic because musicians were just sitting around not doing anything. So we could, you know, they could really play with this stuff. So, yeah. yeah. And so that's that. I, I just, uh, this is one of those things I'm, I'm definitely recommending to everybody. They check this Thank movie you. out. Cause there's a Thanks lot of fun to be had here. This is just a, it got the gears turning in a really positive way. <laughs> and the fact that I'm in an airport right now, um, under normal circumstances with the flight delayed and having to move things around, I would not have done this. I would have just, you know, reached out to Annie and canceled this, but I really wanted to chat with you about this movie because I really loved it. So yeah, well, look, I, I love the Atlanta airport. So <laughs> fantastic backdrop there and say, hi you know, it's pretty in the last, 
uh, five years. This is the most time I've spent in Atlanta. I always seem to get stuck here for some reason. So. Yeah, I was there for the um, Rome International Film Festival, which is in Rome, Georgia, by the way. And uh, and yeah, I wound up going there, from, getting picked up at the airport. They, they thought I was Mario um, uh, Van Peebles um, or, uh, or yeah, because he was coming in on the next flight. Slightly. I know. So we, anyway, so Mario and I wound up having like this four hour trip from Atlanta to, uh, uh, to Rome and, uh, which is great. I mean, that's the fun part about going to film festivals. You never know who you can get stuck with you know, for a four hour car ride from an airport. And, uh, we had a fantastic time, but, um, uh, but yeah, well, thanks, Chris. Thanks for, uh, thanks for, uh, making time out of your, you know, Atlanta adventure. <laughs> no, thank you, Dan. I, I appreciate it. And best of luck with the film. You've you right. got a special thanks, one man. here, man. Thank you. All right. Take okay. care. Thanks, Annie. Thanks, Annie. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate it.